0: Leviticus chapter 23 beginning in verse 15. The Lord is speaking to Moses as he does through most, almost all of the book of Leviticus. Remember this is the book in the Bible, the one where almost every single word written is the spoken word of God. Pretty cool. Verse 15 begins, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheep of the wave offering, that would be the festival of first fruits. there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord. With their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lamps before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priests. And on this same day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual statute in all your generations, places throughout your or all your dwelling places. Sorry, throughout your generations, when you reap the harvest of your land. Moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Lord, may these words show us Jesus. May we see Jesus once again this morning in this, in this fourth of the feasts of Israel. See Him clearly and understandably. And Father, may we be touched by this picture of Jesus today. As Your Holy Spirit teaches, we pray, Father, that all other things would fade into the background and we would only see Jesus and hear Your Word, Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, gives us some context for this feast, for all the feasts. He says, Three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, by the way, would include Passover and First fruits, So once a year... All the males of Israel, they would show up, they would come to Jerusalem, and they would show up, first of all, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, first fruits, Unleavened Bread, the first three major Feasts of Israel we talked about last week, all kind of stuck together around that same period of time. And it goes on, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed, so three times a year. All of the people of Israel, the men of Israel, were required to show up before the Lord. Three times they had to gather for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 16 tells us, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. These are the Holy Days of Israel, which we began looking at last week. The Holy Days. Seven major feasts. Now there are a lot of minor feasts, a lot of different feasts. And Frank was telling me earlier this morning, the way he told the difference between the feasts, as a Jewish boy growing up, was based on the cookies that they would eat. Some much less appealing than others. Like he was talking about the Feast of Purim, and there was a cookie. And what was in the cookie, he said? Some kind of date nut filling? Poppy Poppy seed. Which, you see, even still, he shudders. It's just nasty. I don't want you to remember these speaks based on cookies. I don't want you to remember these speaks just based on... What what, what was that? I, I want you to know them. And to understand the application that they literally have in our lives. I am stunned, again, as we continue to go through the scriptures, at how much everything applies to our lives. Every word of every verse, of every paragraph, of every page has application and is God inspired. And so here we are at the fourth of the Feast of Israel. Last week we looked at three of them together. Those three three we moved through. We, we moved quickly through three of them. Well, maybe you won't think it was so quick last week. But we moved through three. We covered three. And the reason we were able to cover, cover three all at once was because we had looked at all three of those before in different studies. You had some background if you've been with us any amount of time in studying through these things. This next piece is the only piece we're going to look at today. It's all we're going to have time for today. But I, it's interesting to me as... As you look at the Feast of Israel, God truly was trying to get his people focused in and dialed into what he wanted for him. He, he did everything possible to get the Israelites to think about him. Three times every year they had to migrate back to Jerusalem. For the celebration of these seven feasts. Three of them at one time and the others broken up throughout the year. Three different times they were required to come. And I want you to notice something as we begin. And this is kind of a mini, uh, mini point, mini message all by itself. The women were encouraged to come. The men were required to come. The women were encouraged to come. The men were commanded to be there. Guys, mark this. Mark this. Because many of us men could really use a dose of this in the church today. If your wife can't make it, you set the standard. If if your girlfriend can't be there, you go. So much in the church, and and I say this with as much understanding as I can muster, I have seen over and over that in the church, the most faithful people tend to be the women with the men abdicating what God has called them to. And I think it's in the nature of the beast. Sorry guys, I didn't mean to call you beasts, but you know what I'm saying. It's kind of in the nature of who we are. I've said this before, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that elders are to be men. Why? I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm convinced of, it's so that they would be involved. Because if it wasn't declared that elders needed to be men, no men would lead in the church, the women would just do everything. And we'd be content to let them do so. And if you don't believe me, who did most of the work on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Who tends to step up and serve? Now guys and women have their problems, and we'll deal with their problems at another time. But we have a tendency to just kind of abdicate. And I'm asking, I'm pleading I'm begging with you guys to take a hint from what God says when He commands all the men of Israel, you must be there. Women, I'd love for you to come. Women, I know you're probably going to show up anyway. But guys, you are commanded be there be there you might say well Rick that's patriarchal <laughs> it's sexist the man must be there but the woman doesn't have to be well where's that coming from guys I'm not talking about lordship here I'm talking about leadership and there's a huge difference it's not that the man is called to lord it over the woman not at all but he is called to set a standard to step out to be willing to lead forward to take the risk to be the one who isn't afraid. Not that the woman would be afraid. But to take a role that God has called him to. And husbands, by the way, your wives want you to leave. They want you to. Oh, I don't want to upset her. Get over that. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with women who have said, I just wish my husband would be the spiritual leader in our home. But I have to do it. Man, God has called us to a role, guys. Step up to it. By the way, young men girls are far more attracted to leaders than to wimps. So you can learn something from this as well. (laughs) But far too many men are abdicating, giving up, missing opportunities to be prepared for the spiritual battle. When we gather here on Sunday's game, it's not just, I don't know, a social thing. It is preparation for warfare. It is girding up It is getting ready It's putting on the armor It's having the tools The equipment It's learning how to handle the sword And that's why God wants us here A big reason of it and so many men are ill-equipped for the battle Because they would advocate this For watching football on a Sunday morning And the Lord's saying I have opportunity here to prepare you to lead You want to be a leader? I'll show you how But you've got to show up They say that's the deal in, uh, in athletics The team that shows up Is the team that wins The team that really wants the ball That's the team that's going to win As we saw last Sunday Although I'm not really sure the Seahawks wanted to win if you saw the game, it went into overtime. And they won 24-21 to by three missed field goals. From the kicker of the New York Giants, his last name is Feely. He wasn't feeling so good last Sunday, I can tell you. In fact, I've heard that last Sunday night he was so distraught over this whole thing, over three missed field goals. My father-in-law shared this with me, that he actually tried to hang himself. But he couldn't succeed. He just couldn't kick over the chair. (laughs) You are a compassionate bunch of people. I'll tell (laughs) you. Now, you may... (laughs) Shall we just go home? Have a great day. Um, no, but the bottom line, guys, guys, men, hear me on this. God wants you to show up. And he wants you to show some backbone and to be willing to step up to leadership. You know, I think maybe part of the reason men fear leadership or it or step back from it is the fear that what if I do and I fail as a leader? You know what? You will not fail as a leader if you will take the risk to lead especially in this place because it's God's Spirit who will take you one step at a time. And if you think I stand up here every morning just confident and sure of myself and ready to go, this is going to be great, I'm just going to it out and they're all going to learn and I really got it all together, you're absolutely wrong. The only confidence I have is in the Spirit of God at work here and in His Word that we are looking at today. Now again, you may recall these feasts serve two purposes. These feasts, as the Israelites would gather together, the men commanded, the women encouraged, they serve for commemoration and anticipation. Commemoration and anticipation. Verse 4 of Leviticus 23 says, These are the appointed times of the Lord. "...holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them." Appointed times, the word moeda. It also means appointed signs. They not only are appointed times to commemorate things done by the Lord, but they're appointed signs to anticipate what the Lord was going to do, is going to do. The first of these feasts, the first four, speak of the first coming of Christ. The last three, which we'll begin to get into next week, speak of the second coming of Christ. And the parallels and the pictures And the portrayals in these feasts Are absolutely stunning Four of these uh, feasts come in the springtime Four of them come in the springtime We're looking at the fourth this morning That all speak of His first coming And events happening around His first coming Three of the feasts happen in the fall Which speak then of His second coming Again last week we began with Passover Passover is the first of the seven feasts And then unleavened bread And then first fruits You may recall that Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus being the seed that would die to bear much fruit. And so the Feast of First Fruits, as we saw last week, pointed to the first fruits, which is Jesus, His resurrection. He was the first, and we're the bunch of fruits that are following after. In a great company of believers. Which brings us directly to the next feast, which is connected in a way to first fruits. It's called Shavuot. Shavuot, if you want to spell that out, S-H-A-V-U-O-T would be our English version of it. Shavuot literally just means weeks. Weeks. It is the feast of weeks. Verse 16, look at this. The Lord says, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. 50 days. Beginning with the feast of first fruits, which you know happened on that one day. Passover happened the very next day. The feast of unleavened bread happened the very next day. Would be the feast of first fruits, a Sunday. And on first fruits, they would bring that wave offering of the first of the fruits of the land. And 50 days later, they began on that day and began to count. And they counted seven Sabbaths from that Sabbath. 49 total days. And then on the 50th day, the day after the Sabbath. What's the day after the Sabbath, by the way? Sunday. So on a Sunday, now 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks was celebrated by the Israelites. Between first fruits and the Feast of Weeks, again, 50 days. And it's, by the way, where we got the Greek name for the same observance, Pentecost. Pentecost, pente, meaning 50. The Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. Verse 17 tells us, You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering, Made of two tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you might say, well, wait a minute, didn't they already celebrate first fruits? They celebrated first fruits, and then fifty days later they celebrated first fruits again. Yes, in a way, but this is different. They are intimately connected, however. Both are celebrations of harvest. The feast of first fruits on the first Sunday after Passover spoke of the barley harvest. And so when they brought the sheaf in, it was a sheaf of barley that was waved before the Lord. Now, 50 days later, on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, it was the wheat harvest. So they would make these cakes, these wheat cakes, literally, and those would be the wave offering before the Lord. But what is it that Shavuot commemorates? Remember, they either commemorate or anticipate. Well, actually, they do both. What is it that Shavuot commemorates historically? Nothing. Nothing. Aside from the wheat harvest of that year, there is nothing historically for Israel prior to this command, nothing that God was drawing them back to. This is a feast that was completely anticipatory. A feast that completely looked forward. However, aside from the wheat harvest... Judaism over the years has developed, as a lot of times religion will do, developed a lot of traditions. And there is something that a Jew today, if they kept Shavuot, which is the least kept feast of all the feasts of Israel, if they did keep it, an Orthodox Jew would, they would remember something else that was connected or tied into this. Around 200 AD, Shavuot began to morph into tradition. And instead of waving the Omer, some rabbis did some counting. And they realized, as far as the calendar was concerned, that Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, fell right around the time of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so, those few who keep the Shavuot today, who keep the Feast of Weeks, they keep it as a memorial, a commemoration, looking back to when the people received the law at Mount Sinai. Shavuot literally became known as the birthday of Judaism when the Jewish people became a people there at the giving of the law. Kind of like our July 4th when our independence was declared, Israel became a religious nation when God audibly declared the law. Do you remember what happened? The people gathered all there at the base of Sinai and God began to speak and it literally freaked them out beyond all belief. They were on their faces crying out, Don't have him speak to us again. Moses, you go talk to him. Tell us what he said. We can't handle this rabbis also teach by the way that when the Lord gave those Ten Commandments we studied this several months ago now when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments and spoke and the people heard the words were given in seventy languages God just spoke once and 70 different languages would have been heard. Why is that? Because at that time it was believed there were 70 languages in the world. That the Ten Commandments were spoken to all the languages of the world and had every person, every people group been uh, there at that day, they would have heard in their own language. In their own language. There's an interesting parallel to that which we'll see in a moment. But Feast of Weeks, it does anticipate something. For the entire world. For every tongue and every nation. It anticipates something fantastic, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Listen, the Lord doesn't declare the Feast of Weeks as a commemorative, backward-looking event. That's what tradition does. Don't miss this. Far too much religion is about looking back. It's about commemoration of things done, of things in the past. And God is saying, I don't want you to look to the past. I want you looking to the future. Now, but Rick, didn't we just take communion? Isn't that about the past? Yes, it's about the past as it pertains to the future. For without the crucifixion of Jesus, we would have no future. So we recognize and remember Christ's death. His blood poured out, His body broken. Why? Because it guarantees our future, our salvation. God wants to draw our eyes forward. That's the importance of prophecy in the Scripture. And remember, these feasts are prophetic in nature, appointed signs that we might continue to look ahead, to look ahead and not be drawn to the past. And that's something, gang, that even in our own short, tiny little lives we have trouble with. We want to look back. We want to remember the old days when it was better. The places we've lived before that were more comfortable. The things that worked out for me back at that other job, or in that other marriage, or in that other relationship. Oh man, if it could only be the way that it was, and God's saying, look forward, look forward, look forward, don't look back. So how is it that the Lord draws us forward here? As he gets us into that place of recognizing this is not about commemoration, but it's about an appointment. An appointed sign, anticipation. A couple of things to notice. In verse 16, it tells us that they were to count 50 days. To count 50 days. To count 50 days. There's a Jewish custom, by the way, still observed to a degree in Israel today. During the 50 days between first fruits and Shavuot, it's called the counting of the Omer. The counting of the Omer. Where they would, each day, beginning with that first day of first fruits, for every one of the 50 days, the male of the household would stand up, maybe go out on the porch, and count the day. They would say, today's the 12th day, making one week, five days of the Omer. Or, today's the 13th day, making one week, six days of the Omer. Every day, day after day after day, for 50 days, they would count the days. (laughs) Ever heard the phrase, a watch pot never boils? Actually, I found out this morning, it's not a watch pot, it's a watched pot never boils. I thought it was a watch pot. <laughs> a watch pot never boils. But people do the same thing today, and this is what I was talking about, again, we spend time counting the days instead of counting on the day. Counting the days instead of counting on the day. What do you mean? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter writes Know this first of all That in the last days Mockers will come with their mocking Following after their own lusts And saying Where's the promise of his coming Forever since the fathers fell asleep All continues Just as it was From the beginning of creation Day in, day out Today's no different It just keeps rolling on Time just keeps floating on Everything is the same. Nothing's changed. Why would you say that Jesus is coming again? Come on. Counting the days after day after day. But Peter says in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. But He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Gang, counting always slows things down how about the Christmas holidays and children every day we have a little advent calendar in our home it's one of those really cool ones we got from Costco I actually got from the Pittuses and I need to mention that because I want them to get full credit for that but we have this advent calendar you open the little doors and each day you open a door, one day each day you open another door, two days and I'll tell you what, I don't know how Hayden stands himself I don't know how he survives the whole counting process isn't it hard to do Every day till Christmas are you, are you if Christmas was tomorrow, would that be okay with you? It's not. It's three more weeks. <laughs> and they hang their head, low. oh. And every day, and I remember this as a child, as soon as the season began, I begin to count the days, and oh, it just took forever. Forever. And then Christmas Eve was worse. You'd get in bed and you knew you still have like ten more hours to wait. And every minute, I will never forget the Christmas. Some of you have heard me share this before. My brother and I were sharing a room, and our grandmother was in the room with us. Poor grandma. You know, God rest her soul. She needs the rest after that night. She's in the room with us. And every five minutes, I kid you not, Ron said, Grandma, what time is it? (laughs) Grandma, what time is it? Counting, counting, counting and some people say why doesn't the Lord just tell us when he's coming because we would be counting the days and it would slow the whole thing down instead Jesus would rather that we anticipate the day the moment it could be like now (laughs) it could be this afternoon eat quick you're going to go you're going to be out of here Matthew 24 42 Jesus says be on the alert if we knew the day he was coming we would not live on the alert if we knew that it was January twenty fourth, two thousand and ten, do you think we would be living for the day right now? Do you think we would be focused on? Do you think we would really care about righteous things? Oh, some would. Some of you better people out there might be concerned about righteous things. The rest of us would be going, "I got time. I got time. I was the worst about that all the way through high school and college. The paper's not due for another three weeks." it's not due till day after tomorrow. I got like eight hours till that class. <laughs> counting, counting, counting. Well, they were to count the days. But the Lord would tell us, don't count the days. You count on the day. You long for the day. Anticipate the day is coming. Now, once they landed on that 50th day, they were to do something else. They were to come with two loaves. They were to count the 50 days, and now they're to come with two loaves. But what do these loaves represent? You can see it again in verse 17. Bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread. Now talking to a Jewish person, ask them the question. Two loaves. What's that all about? Why two? What's the purpose of this? And a Jewish person Drawing back to the giving of the law That tradition that sprung up They'd say Oh, two loaves Two tablets of the law The two loaves are the Ten Commandments That's the point So we bring two loaves of the wave offering To remember the giving of the law God doesn't say anything about the giving of the law In Leviticus In fact, He doesn't connect the giving of the law To the Feast of Weeks anywhere In Scripture That's a religious tradition that was added on later. So again, if the two loaves are the two laws, or the the two tablets of stone for the law, we have a little problem. We have a little problem. Now Exodus 31.18 does say that when God had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So we know there were two tablets, and I guess you can make that allusion back to it. But gang, there's a big problem. Because number three, if you're taking notes, these two loaves, they were to be cooked or baked with leaven. With leaven. There shall be, they should be a fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So I would have to ask said Jewish person who told me that the two loaves represent the law, why are, do they, are they baked with leaven? What is Levin representative of in the Bible? Sin. 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 Is there a problem with the law? Is the law sinful? Listen, gang, the only problem with God's perfect law is man's inability to keep it. But the law itself. Well, I'll read you. Psalm 19:7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, even than much fine gold and sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The two, the two leavened loaves cannot represent the law, based on Israel's own writings, based in the Old Testament, because the law is perfect and leaven is that picture of sin. Therefore, we have a serious problem. They cannot represent the perfect law. So, what do they represent? Verse eighteen. Along with the bread you shall present seven one year old male lambs without defect, and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall offer also offer one male goat for a sin offering. If the law is perfect and this represents the law, why are we offering a sin offering? Two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord. They are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. What's going on here? Well, now we take it a step further. Not only were they to bake or cook the loaves with leaven, now they are to consecrate the loaves. How do they do that? Well, they have the two loaves there and they begin to give the sacrificial offerings. The burnt offering. The grain offering. The drink offering. And the last two are interesting to me. The sin offering and the peace offering. What is this about? What could this mean? What does it anticipate? Again, the Feast of Weeks was not a commemorative event of the giving of the law at Sinai. The Feast of Weeks was an anticipatory event of the giving of the Spirit on Mount Zion. Not the law on Sinai, but the Spirit on Zion, that is Jerusalem. And you know the story. Acts chapter 2. On Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Do you remember? The disciples were all gathered together in one room. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 tells us. And suddenly there came a fire, a noise from heaven, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What we call Pentecost, we don't even think about the Feast of Weeks. But gang, the Feast of Weeks was given to anticipate. And look forward to Pentecost The giving of the Holy Spirit Uh, Quickly you might consider these things The contrast of the two Of what was given at Mount Sinai And what was given at Mount Zion There in Jerusalem At Mount Sinai the law came down At Mount Zion the Spirit came down At Mount Sinai fire scorched the mountain At Zion, fire rested upon the apostles. At Sinai, God thundered. Remember we said those 70 voices. At Zion, the word was heard in multiple languages. Every language gathered there from from all these different places, all heard in their own language. By the power of the Spirit, they heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at Sinai, you remember Moses came down the mountain, and when he came down, the people were having a wild paganistic party around that golden calf and that day at Sinai 3,000 people died but you know the day the church was birthed 3,000 people exact same number were saved were saved the feast of weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost it all points to the same event that event when the spirit would be poured out and the church would be born, it truly is the birthday of Christianity not the birthday of Judaism that day when God would look down and pour His Spirit into these men and His Spirit would continue to be passed along, that His Spirit would be able to powerfully do things that couldn't be done when Jesus was walking on the face of the planet. Because remember, Jesus limited Himself setting aside His glory to one body, as one man, who could only heal as many people as He could be around, who could only offer as much prayer as one man could offer, and yet he said, when I go away, it'll be better for you. It'll be better. Why? Because my spirit will be here. And my spirit will not be limited right here. It's going to be on Gail, and on Heather, and on Les. It's going to be on Lee. My spirit is going to be passed out. That That is the anticipation of the Feast of Weeks. Okay, okay, Rick. all right, that's great. It happened on Pentecost, I understand that. What do the two loaves represent? I still don't understand that. Two loaves baked with leaven. How does that work? Okay? The two loaves are two peoples. Two people groups are represented by these two loaves baked with leaven. That saturated, if you will, with sin. You see, prior to the day of Pentecost, in the world, there were two people groups, total. Oh, I know there were different nations and languages and and all that. But there were two types of people in God's eyes, from His perspective. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Everybody who's not a Jew. Jews and Gentiles, two people groups. But after... After the day of Pentecost, something shifted in the heavenly realm and even on earth. In the spiritual realm, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And a third group popped up. Suddenly now there are Jews still. There were Gentiles. And there are the children of God, the church. That seems awfully arrogant. Hey, I didn't do it. (laughs) I'm just part of it. And thankful to be so. What about the leaven and the sin offering? Why all the sin stuff? Because, gang, you know it. There's leaven in the bread. There is sin in the church. Can we just admit that? Has anybody yet found the perfect church where nothing ever goes wrong? And if you do, would you please give me a call? I'd love to see it because it doesn't exist can I just in a side note share this with you that this is going to go wrong at some point is that encouraging? (laughs) not the whole bridge I'm not saying we're headed for a cliff but gang there is sin here there is sin here and I'll tell you what just speaking about myself if your expectations are too high I absolutely guarantee you I'm going to work very hard to let you down because there's sin here there will be people sitting in this church that frustrate you, that irritate you. You're going to walk in on a bright, glorious spring Sunday morning, ready to worship the Lord and see someone and go, Oh, my Because there's leaven in the loaf. There's sin in the church. There's sin in Israel. Two loaves, two peoples, the Jewish people, Christians, both with leaven, both in need of a sin offering which we receive through Jesus Christ. Here's the good news, gang, about the church. Yeah, there's sin here. Yeah, there's love. Yeah, we're going to mess it up. We're going to upset each other. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to do things wrong toward each other. But where there is sin, Paul tells us, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's how God responds, by the way, to our sin. is with more grace. More grace is given. That's a great way for us to think about sin in this church someone sins against you, how about abounding all the more with grace toward them? That's what your Father did for you. Where there's sin, there is great grace. Why? Because Christ is our sin offering. I love the old bumper sticker. You've seen it all over the place. We're not perfect, just forgiven. Hallelujah, amen, that's the deal. And there's not a one of them. I was, I was sitting back here just... I told you before I think things My mind never stops It's a little annoying Especially for my wife But, but it never stops going And even during worship today The thought just kind of Blipped through my mind And, and moved on out I, I hate appearances I just hate appearances I got up this morning And I was trying to decide Whether or not to tuck in my shirt <laughs> uh, Granted we're in a barn So the jeans are okay But I'm a pastor The shirt probably should be tucked in Now, that's silly, but I'm walking down this morning again thinking constantly, just thinking, about why did I even think twice about that? Who cares? Who cares about the appearances of things? Of course, unless we're appearing as evil, we want to avoid that appearance. But an untucked shirt is not evil. And if you disagree, meet me afterwards. We'll have a discussion about that. But appearances, how we look and how hard do we work as Christians... To look humble. Oh. <laughs> How hard do we work to appear, especially when other Christians are around, like we're righteous. Bible open, and I'm taking notes, and, and please, take notes. Just don't take notes to appear to take notes, okay? The whole appearances thing, I, I digress, but gang... We're not perfect people. We will never be perfect people until we see Him and then we'll be perfect because we will be like Him. We will see Him as He is and at that point, gang, glorified bodies, perfection, and it doesn't matter if you're sure it's tucked in or not, you will be perfect. Amen. So what about the peace offering? Why is that included? Now this is very cool to me. The peace offering is included because Shavuot anticipated a great peace. Listen to this, Ephesians 2.14 Tells us he, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man Gentiles, Jews, the church. The Gentile, the Jew, the Christian. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It doesn't matter anymore. When you're in Christ, you're no longer a Gentile or a Jew. You are in Christ. And all of that falls away. Paul says he establishes peace that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access to one spirit or in one spirit to the Father. Peace. And you might say, well great. If that's the case, why are there Gentiles, Christians, and Jews? Why if the two loaves represent the two groups, but he makes peace making one man, why aren't we one with the Jewish people? Why aren't the Jews and the Christians one faith together? We will be. We will be. It is ordained to happen. It is proclaimed to happen. The Bible is clear that it will happen. And I have one last thing to tell you this morning before we go. And if you've been tuning out, tune in right now, because this is what I want you to hear. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. At the end of this, speaking of this feast, God says something interesting. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest, you are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Would you turn over to the book of Ruth? book of Ruth, right after Judges, right before Samuel. Chapter 1. We're just going to read the whole book. No, I'm kidding. Another custom, interesting, that sprung up among Jews during this time, the Feast of Weeks. Another custom and observance even observed today is the reading of the book of Ruth. This beautiful little four-chapter book in the Old Testament. Why? Well, a Jewish person would tell you, that Ruth is reminiscent of this time period. And in fact, in the book of, of Ruth, the Feast of Wheats happens. The barley harvest happens. And the wheat harvest happens. Both are covered in this story. It's a time of harvest. It's a time of remembrance. And the Jewish people will read it thinking back to those days and, and commemorating again, looking back. Again, Ruth... Is anticipatory. The whole book is looking forward. We're not going to look at the whole thing, but just listen to this. Verse 1 of chapter 1 it tells us that it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The the name of that man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Melon and Chileon. Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah In other words, they were the tribe of Ephraim Who were from Bethlehem in Judah Now they entered the land of Moab And remained there But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died And she was left with her two sons Then after that, the two sons They took two Moabite women They took Orpah Not Oprah, Orpah And they took Ruth as their wife These two Moabite girls Married these two sons of Elimelech who had passed away. So now you've got Malon and Chilion and, and their wives Orpah and Ruth. And they're all together with Naomi. So you still have somewhat of a family unit. But both Malon and Chilion, the two sons, died. And so you now, now have mother-in-law Naomi and Ruth and Orpah left. Brokenhearted. hearted. Left without anything in the world. Naomi is penniless, broke All she can think of is to go back. Go back to Bethlehem. Go back to Israel where she belongs. And so she tells her daughter-in-law, Go back to your families. I have nothing I can give you. And they they cling to her. No, no, we want to stay with you. And she says, Are you kidding? You think I can bear a child that can grow up and be a man that you can marry now? That's not going to work. Go home. So Orpah does. Orpah heads back home. But Ruth clings to her. Will not let go of her. And verse 15 says... Well, verse 14, it says, They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and her gods return after your sister-in-law. Now listen. Listen to this. Ruth was from Moab, which means she was a what? A Moabite. A Moabite. Which also means she was a what? Gentile. A Gentile. A Gentile girl who married a Jewish boy. Ruth is this picture, this Gentile, but she's clinging. She's hanging on to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Naomi, who is a, a Jew, a Gentile, is clinging to the Jew. Ruth was the needy outsider talked about in Leviticus 23.22. She is the outsider, the foreigner, the needy person. And so this Gentile clings to the Jew just like you and I are clinging to the Jews this morning. What do you mean? In our study of the Old Testament, we cling to the Naomi, to the Jews. We cling and understand through the Old Testament, through the Jewish people, Jesus in a way that we could not understand Him otherwise. God, through the Jewish people, has given us a picture of grace and redemption and Jesus Christ himself in a way that is absolutely magnificent. And so we, like Ruth, we cling to Naomi saying, No, we don't want to go back to the old ways. In fact, Ruth says, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge, and your people shall be my people and your God my God. Your God, Israel, is my God. I want your God. I want to cling to your God. And the only difference, really, truly, between the Jews and the Gentiles today, or sorry, the Jews and the Christians today, is the Jews have not yet fully come to understand their God, who is Jesus Christ. They have not yet fully come to understand that Messiah is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. And so Paul says, Ephesians 2.12, Remember, you at one time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, kind of like a Moabite girl, (laughs) and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so Ruth clings to Naomi. I love this. These two now cling together. And again, the book of Ruth is the story of how a Gentile learns about the Lord from a Jew. Just like us. And it's also the story of how a Jew cannot understand Messiah without the Gentile conceiving him. What do you mean? The Feast of Weeks foreshadowed that amazing event of the birth of the church. On the Feast of Weeks, on Pentecost, and the church needed, as I've just said, the church needed and needs the Jewish people to learn of the Lord. We need the Old Testament to see God in ways we could not see Him unless we had it. And so, Galatians three twenty four, Paul says, "The law, and I would say by extension Israel, has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith." In Romans 11.18, Paul says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, referring to Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. We need the Jewish people. We need the history of Israel. We need the Old Testament in the same way the Jewish people cannot come to know Messiah except through the conception of the church. Now, if you're still confused about that, watch this. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 13 chapter 4 verse 13 tells us now after all this happens they go back the Jew, the Gentile go back to the promised land together I love that picture and they get back into Bethlehem Naomi and Ruth together and Naomi says listen go out and and glean from the fields Leviticus 23-22 go glean of the leftovers of the fields so we can have something to eat so Ruth goes out and she ends up in the fields of a man named Boaz who happens to be a kinsman Who happens to be second in line to, as the Israelites would understand, to redeem or to buy or to take care of Ruth. Because Ruth's husband had died, it would fall responsibility to the next of kin to care for her. This Moabite who refused to go back to being a Gentile but wanted to cling to the Jewish side of her life. And so Boaz and Ruth, making a long story short, actually it's a short story, a little shorter, they fall in love. Watch what happens. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons and has given birth to Him. Now watch this. Don't miss this. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women also gave him a name saying, watch this, a son has been born to who? Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. And so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you trace it straight on down the line, the father of ultimately Jesus Christ. Now here's what's awesome. Naomi. Naomi is called the mother. Naomi is the one credited with the birth of this son. Naomi the Jew. But the son belongs to the Gentile, I thought. To Ruth, who has come in through with the help of this Jewish woman. Now the Gentile becomes a part of the family. But now when the son is born, when the son is conceived, who is the mother of the son? It's Naomi. It's Naomi. Rick, what in the world are you saying? <laughs> Suddenly... When Naomi, the Jew, gets the baby, understands the baby, has the baby, Ruth is gone. Ruth is not in the picture. The book of Ruth, which is all about Ruth, ends with no Ruth. It goes on ruthlessly. Sorry, I couldn't help it. (laughs) Verse 13 all the way to 22. Ruth is out of the picture. When? When Naomi gets the baby. When Naomi gets the baby, Ruth is gone. And that is exactly what's going to happen, folks. The Jewish people will receive Messiah after the Christian people are gone. After they leave. After that time of the rapture. Until then, oh, some Jews will be saved. I'm not saying that at all. They will become the church they will become Christians no longer Jew or Gentile but one in Christ Jesus and all those who are one in Christ Jesus at the time that Jesus comes to call us home will go home people who were at one time Jews but now are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus but gang after that happens and I'm talking about that time called the rapture of the church then Naomi gets the baby then the Jew will understand and see, finally, who Messiah truly is. Paul says in Romans 11.25, A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And we see the anticipation of these holy days. Seven major feasts pointing to the complete work of Messiah. The first four fulfilled in His coming. The second three fulfilled in His second coming. The gang again. again Let me remind you not to count the days, but to count on the day. The day we anticipate when Jesus Christ will call us home. Rick, what about that whole rapture thing? I'm still vague or cloudy on that theology, and I'm not even sure if it's really biblically accurate. If you're not sure, come back tonight. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church and look at it biblically and understand it in our revelation study at six o'clock. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we sing these cease, we anticipate. We anticipate and long for the day. God is in my heart of hearts, and I know you put it there. That we be a fellowship that does not concern ourselves with the day-to-day, but focuses ourselves on the day. That we would live moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, anticipating, hoping for, longing for, looking to that arrival of Christ, listening for the call to go home. And that that Father, as John says, will purify us. That desiring after you and looking for your coming, anticipation and bated breath, Father, we look for that day when your voice sounds like a trumpet and you say, come up here and we go. And until then, Father, rather than being caught up in the past and commemorating old things, and rather than counting each day and wondering if it's ever going to happen, Lord, may we live. Knowing that our next breath could be the last we take on this earth and the first heartbeat that we will feel in heaven. And as we pray this morning, if you are not sure if Jesus came right now, if you're not sure where you would go, you can be sure today. Bible tells us these things were written so that we might know that we have eternal life and if you want eternal life in Jesus Christ if you want to be sure you're ready to go when he calls all you have to do is cling to him like Ruth to Naomi you need you need to cling to Christ pray this morning Lord Jesus I am a sinner I have leaven baked all throughout me and I need your forgiveness I need a sin offering I need a the death and burial and resurrection of Christ to cover me. Forgive me, Lord, and be my Savior. Come into my heart and my life today, this moment, and lead me on to the day when you come. I trust you now as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. In Jesus' name, amen.